Luke chapter 6. Before, before I read the passage for us, um, you know, I was thinking this week that people talk a lot about not wanting to be on the wrong side of history, right? Um, but that's just a matter of perspective, right? Uh, you think, well, well whose perspective? Uh, who, who's making that judgment? Typically, the standard that is followed is by those who are in power, like the loudest, uh, the, the majority. Um, but if we know anything about history, what we know is that the majority can get it wrong a lot of times, right? I, I'm pretty sure that, what, any dictatorship has gotten it wrong? Right? I think fascist Germany got it wrong, right? Um, Chairman Mao got it wrong. Uh, but, but that's been true of the church at times, too. Um, as the church even has given approval to things like slavery and segregation, um, getting in, in bed, aligning themselves with, with secular powers and, and parties, right? But, but it's not just the majority that gets it wrong. The, the minority can get it wrong, too, a lot of times. We're, we're always wanting to pick sides. Uh, we want to pick a side and make sure that we're picking the right one, that we're on the right side. But what Jesus is fond of doing is coming along and, and looking at both sides and saying, actually, you're both wrong. Uh, and, and you're both on the wrong side of history because you missed the gospel. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So Luke, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? O Lord, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Don't you love it when you're right? It's pretty delicious, right? Um, remember a couple years ago they had the, uh, that debate, is it... Is the dress yellow and gold, or white and gold, or is it blue and black, right? Um, and if you said blue and black, like you, it was blue and black, right? Um, you, you, you love to be right. Um, does the recording say Laurel or Yanni? Right? We, we, we love to be on the right side. Um, I heard a therapist recently talk about um, how he counsels married couples, and there's a big question that he always asks them. He says, do you want to be happy, or would you rather be right? And almost all the times, people are going to choose happiness. Uh, but all the issues that come up in their relationship have to do with being right. 
Um, of course, it, it makes me happy to be right, so there's that. <laughs> there's that too. Um, I'm not sure if I've ever seen on one of those cable news shows political pundits, either Republican or Democrat or, or someone else, make some sort of argument, and the other side stops and says, you know, that was, that was a good point. Like, um, that was well-reasoned. That had a lot of sound wisdom. Uh, I think you might be right and I'm wrong. I need to reconsider my point of view. Like, you never hear that because we love to be right. Right? And nothing makes us happy quite like feeling that we are right in terms of our morality. Uh, we like to think that uh, moral decisions that we make are, are just for the sake of of what we think is good, right? Because after all, aren't we all altruists at heart? Um, But what if we simply make those moral decisions uh, just for ourselves, to make us feel good, uh, to justify ourselves, um, to preserve maybe our character, or simply just for the sake of being morally superior? Now, would you know that that you were doing that. You say, oh, I don't do that, but how, how do you know? Because we can deceive ourselves, right? There's a, there's a writer named Diane Langberg, who's a, a psychotherapist. She says that self-deception works in concert with temptation to be self-serving so we can convince ourselves of the rightness or goodness of actions that are, in fact, wrong. Um, Nowadays, if you're my age uh, and you're a, a pastor to be like hip and relevant in, in sermons, you need to quote David Brooks or something that David Brooks uh, quoted. Um, he's an uh, op-ed um, columnist for the New York Times. He, he wrote a book in which he references a, a rabbi from the 20th century named uh, Joseph uh, Soloveitchik, where uh, Joseph Soloveitchik talked about the two kinds of, of, of human uh, uh, of humanity, right? Two, two kinds of people. He called them Adam 1 and Adam 2. He said Adam 1 um, are, are, are the kind of people that are very self-serving, that, that want to, to have great careers and have a lot of victories and be rich and be successful. Uh, and then there's the Adam 2 type of person who is humble and self-sacrificial, who desires a life marked by an outward-focused love and, and and serving others and healing what's broken and, and wanting to, to be good and, and do good. And he says that in our quest to be moral and moral creatures, we want to be and we think that we're Adam twos, right? The humble, uh, self-sacrificial type of person. But actually, most of the time, we're Adam ones. We're self-serving. Let me, let me just ask some questions to kind of give us some example of these, um, uh, these scenarios. First, what, why have you made the financial decisions that you have to store up treasures? Um, is, it, is it to be a good steward of your money, uh, to, to use those things wisely so you can use it for good and those around you and your family and your community? Or is it to get to a certain number uh, in, in your head that you deem to be a mark of success? How about the flip side of that? Why do you give your money away? Uh, to charity or tithing in the church? Is, is it to support a, a great mission or... Um, is it to encourage others to meet their physical needs? Uh, or is it because you'll look good uh, to others in your own sphere? Uh, or you know that there's going to be a good tax write-off coming, right? Uh, why do you help the poor? Is it to reach out to those in need and communicate to them, you are someone who has dignity? Or is it to feel good about yourself and, and build a, a kind of social hierarchical resume? Why do you drive the speed limit? Now, 
maybe you don't drive the speed limit. Um, but when you do drive the speed limit, like, is it to protect the lives of other people that are on the road? Uh, or is it to protect yourself from getting a ticket? Um, or do you just like telling other people that you're a rule follower? In, in our text in Luke 6, Jesus is speaking of two types of people who, although they, they may approach morality from two different kinds of worldviews, they're actually, they share something in common is that what they do in terms of their moral decisions uh, is to be self-serving and self-justifying and out of a sense of self-righteousness. There's two groups that Jesus is really speaking against. Uh, the first group are what we would call irreligious moralists, right? They kind of follow their own moral compass. And the second group are the really religious people, and they're, they're the legalists. They use uh, the law. Uh, for the sake of their own self-righteousness. And what we end up seeing is that, that Jesus, here in these verses, he confronts both of them, and he kind of puts them on, on the same level and then say, you know, both of those uh, views, both of those worldviews, that it comes to ruin. There's actually a third way, and it's a way of grace. Uh, so how does Jesus challenge these two groups? Well, two points. The first one's kind of longer than the second one, just so you, you know. Um, Two ways he confronts these people. The first is he confronts their self-righteousness. And then he confronts them with grace. Look back at verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So how does Jesus confront their self-righteousness? Well, well, whether you're a, a moralist or a legalist, if, you know, if you have an enemy, you know you're supposed to hate them. Right? I mean, they're enemies. That's what you do with enemies. You hate enemies, right? What good are they if you can't hate them? Um, if you're a religious uh, legalist, then you wouldn't say, um, you would say that there's a precedent um, for, for hating enemies, right? I mean, if you look biblically, like our enemies are God's enemies, right? And, and shouldn't we hate these people and what they do? There, there's a history biblically of opposing the wicked, right? Hey, what about this? Uh, what about in order to, to feel good about myself, I might not curse those who curse me, but can I at least ignore them or, or pretend that they don't have any dignity, at least for a while? Can I pretend they don't matter? You're supposed to seek vengeance to those who abuse you, right? I mean, they, they've abused you. Shouldn't the guilty be punished, right? An eye for an eye, that, that sounds pretty biblical, if one strikes you on the cheek, mama told me to defend myself. Right? Retaliation makes us feel good. Cutting someone off in traffic leads to road rage and we feel justified in that. If someone has spoken ill of you, maybe you shut them off or you shun them for days and weeks and maybe even years. If you hurt me, you're dead to me. Right? Pray for those people. No thank you, Jesus. You're dealing with others in the same way that they have partially dealt with us, it, it just doesn't make us feel good. It's very easy, right? And we think, yeah, I know it's easy. That's why I do it. It feels good and it's easy. <laughs> What's easier? Is it being lovingly patient with someone, uh, bearing with them in long suffering, or cutting them off once they've offended you? Of course, it's cutting them off. It's, it's difficult for me to love difficult people, right? If you're a difficult person, I don't want to love you. It's going to take too much work. As an irreligious moralist, it's easier to arbitrarily decide what is best 
for you to do in the moment or, or who you're going to love, right? You can make a pretty good argument for that. And as a legalist, um, a religious person, it's easier to say that maybe you're defending your own character or you're defending uh, the character of God, defending the righteousness of God. But God doesn't need you to defend his righteousness. And this is where Jesus confronts us. He, he says, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. This is the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This verse is really the verse that people abuse uh, and use for their own moralism and their own legalism. Right? What, what Jesus is saying here in this is, is that your life just isn't about you. Like you, are, you are made, you are created uh, in relationships and for relationships. You are put into families and communities. It's not just all about you. And what Jesus gets us to question is that maybe what is the easiest thing for us to do, maybe the easiest response that seems uh, to be a moral option for us, is at best not the most godly and at worst a complete contradiction of the character of God. As we go on, uh, verse 29, Jesus says, From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, we need to be careful about what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying if someone steals your wallet, give them access to your banking information as well. Right? Um, what Jesus seems to be doing is saying some startling statements to give us a picture of radical liberality. If, if I'm a moralist or a legalist, I can say that, that clothing someone is a good thing, right? Feed the hungry, uh, care for the poor, clothe the needy, donate to coats for kids, right? give to goodwill. Which even then, when we do those things, um, we can baptize uh, our, our own spring cleaning in our self-righteousness. Like, I, I'm going to get rid of this junk anyway, but if I go to goodwill, I really feel good about myself. Because I'm helping other people. Even James, James chapter 2, James says that if someone is needy, don't just say, go be warm and well fed, but give them the cloak on your back. Right? Put your money where your mouth is. And we can say, okay, well, I know that that's going to cost me something, right? But I guess I can do that. You see, in Jesus' day, it, you, you had two pieces of clothing. You had your tunic and your cloak. If you gave up your cloak to someone, that is helpful to them because that's an outer garment that is, uh, serves as protection, that serves as warmth, right? But you can do away with that. Like, you can get away, get by without that. But if you gave someone your tunic, too, you would be utterly naked. What's the point that Jesus is making? He, he says that it, it's better to be stripped naked, to be uncomfortable like that, in public display for the sake of another's well-being, than to be self-righteous. What's the gospel connection for us? Here's the gospel connection. Jesus was stripped naked in public display on a cross, bleeding and dying for us for the sake of our spiritual well-being so that we would be stripped of our self-righteousness. Um, as, as a pastor, I feel like that um, at least once a year I have to give a Lord of the Rings illustration. Um, <laughs> So shoot me um, if I use more than that. But um, you remember, I don't know if you've read the book um, or maybe you've seen the movie The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, but in it, uh, they realize that, that this one ring that Frodo has is the ring of power, right? And they're sitting around this, this table uh, and all these uh, um, 
Uh, all these people from all over Middle Earth come to give their input of what to do with it, right? Uh, and they all have unique ideas of what to do with it. Um, they have reasons uh, why they want to go and take it back to their people. It's interesting, though, that really almost all of them, they share one thing in common. They uh, want it to, to serve themselves, right? But they baptize it in morality, some sort of higher good. Like they claim that, that they want to use it uh, to fend off their enemies, of their people, like to set things right, to save their people, to make them prosperous because they've seen poverty for, for generations. But in doing so, those individuals themselves would have greatness and power. This thing would corrupt them. This ring would, would corrupt them to the point where they might save their people, but they would lose their souls. And then Frodo comes along and, and introduces another option. It's, an, it's another way where he says, well, how about we just destroy it? Like, how about we go take it to Mount Doom? We throw it in the fire. It's gone forever. And yeah, I mean, I'll go, I'll go do that. If none of y'all want to go do that, I'm going to go do that. I know I might lose my life, but I'll do that because that's, that's the best option. It's self-sacrificial. And, and that's, that's the gospel, right? Gospels about self-sacrifice. Verse 32, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So even the, the moralists and the legalists together, they can say, well, of course I love those who love me. Like, why, why can't I do that? Right? Um, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Um, I, I do good those do good to those who do good to me. I mean, that's just common sense. You don't want to burn bridges, right? Of course, I'm going to lend to somebody where I know that I'm going to get my money back. That's just good business sense, right? Am I not supposed to be judicious with my money? Like, where, where, where's where's the gap? What am I missing here, Jesus? See, for the irreligious moralist, the trap is thinking that doing what you've determined as right or good will make you happy in the face of the hardships of life. Um, There's a a guy who is the commissioner of Major League Baseball um, named Bart Giamatti. He he said this. He, He was talking about baseball, but he's really talking about life as well. He said, baseball breaks your heart. It's designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings. And then as soon as the chill rains come, it stops and leaves you to face the fall all alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive. And then just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. What he's saying is that there's... Uh, there, there's so many things that we run to uh, to try to fill the void, to try to push back against and, and escape the, the hard realities of life that we deal with, all the brokenness that surrounds us. We try to use things to, to make us happy and, and have that last. But as, as one writer said in a book I'm reading right now uh, called The, the Art of, of Caring, he said, we, we, we live in an age where everyone has a flat screen TV. So it's, the crisis that we have is no longer material. It's existential. It's spiritual. 
because there's an infinite amount of things that we can see or know, there's also an infinite number of ways we can discern that we don't measure up, that we're not good enough, that things are not as good as they could be, and this rips us apart inside. We think that trying to be morally superior will fix all of that and will make us happy, but it doesn't. There's always more brokenness that overwhelms us. For the legalists, what Jesus is doing is, is reacting against their superficiality when it comes to following the law, right? Obeying God's law, as if adhering to the law is all about dotting your I's and crossing your T's, right? Here, here's the trap for the legalists, that there is such a thing as blessings and curses when it comes to following God's law, right? That, that's biblical, that if, if you obey God's law, you will, will see blessing, right? It, it will go well with you. But the heart motivation for the legalist can be driven by the fear of God's displeasure instead of out of love for him. Instead of out of knowing that he cares for you, that he, he knows what is best for you. All over the Old Testament, God is telling his people that if you obey the law, that it will go well with you. Right? This is, this is the best way. Right? Don't go left. Don't go right. Go right down the center. This is the way you're to go. I, I know you. I have created you. I love you. Please follow what I'm telling you. Obey my rules and my statutes. It will go well with you because I desire you. And I've, I desire you to follow what is the way for you to live. For you to be safe. For you to have hope. Apostle Paul says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So you can't earn favor through law keeping, especially if God has already told you, I already love you. I already desire you. I'm already with you. In, in this passage, Jesus is not just confronting motives for moral activity, but identity. Right? The, the, the irreligious moralists, the sinners of this world, put their identity in moral activity, and so do religious people as well. So are you going to choose irreligious moralism or religious legalism? Because both don't work. Uh, there's a scene in, in The Hobbit. There's another Tolkien reference. Sorry. <laughs> it's not The Lord of the Rings. It is The Hobbit. So give me that. Um, you can shoot me after this. Um, there's a scene in The Hobbit where uh, Bilbo Baggins and Gandalf the Wizard are at the edge of Mirkwood Forest. And they're about to enter in. Mirkwood is not a place you want to be, right? It's, it's the darkest, dankest place uh, in, in Middle Earth. Um, and, uh, but that's the path through, right, on their quest. And Bilbo says, do we really have to go through, Gandalf? And he said, yes, you do. If you want to get to the other side, you must go through or give up your quest. And I'm not going to allow you to, get, to give up now. And, and Bilbo said, no, 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 I, I don't mean that. I just mean, isn't there another way around? And he said, well, yeah, I mean, there is. If you care to go 200 miles out of your way to the north, you're going to meet a lot of orcs and goblins and hobgoblins that are the worst that you've ever seen, and you're not going to survive. Or you can go 400 miles south, but then you're in the territory of the black sorcerer, the necromancer, and you know about him. You're not going to survive that. There. You're not going to get a safe path either way. In fact, there are no safe paths in this part of the world. But here's the safe path. It's through what, what doesn't look like it's the safest thing. It doesn't look comfortable. This is what Jesus is saying. There's a third way. 
what Jesus says here comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the sermon is, is, uh, is Jesus' most famous sermon. It's his longest sermon. And the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus' advice to those who would hope to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. It's, it details the marks of those who are already citizens of the kingdom of God. Notice the repeated phrases in, in verses 32 through 34 that there's this phrase, phrase, what benefit is it to you or what credit is it to you that you would do these things, that you love those who love you. The word there for benefit and credit is the same word in the Greek, which is charis, which is the word for grace. Grace is unmerited favor, unmerited love. And here's what Jesus is saying in this, that if you love those who are easy to love because they'll give you something in return, right? if you do good to those who do good to you because you're going to return something in kind, right? where's the grace in that? Where's the grace in that? The point Jesus is making is that the identity of someone who dwells in God's kingdom is one who is marked by and saturated with grace because that is the character of the king who loves them. There's nothing really new about the words that Jesus is saying here in Luke 6. You find it all over the Old Testament. Right? It's a summary of the law. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But here is what is new about what Jesus is saying. Is that the word of God has now been made manifest in the person and work of Jesus. Now the law of God is being perfectly fulfilled in the obedience of Jesus. So we, you and I, can stop grinding and grinding and grinding daily to try to earn any standing before God and any favor from God through our own morality. Jesus' presence, just His simple presence with people like us, ushers into this world a new paradigm where the old is passing away and the new has come. That doesn't mean that, that we're now suddenly antinomian, that we're, um, we suddenly don't care about uh, obedience, we don't care about God's law. No, obeying God's law um, is, is desirable to Him. He loves it when we follow His law, right? It's a mark of holiness. But those who believe in the Lord are now part of his new creation and have to live as a new creation according to the paradigm that he has set out for us. It's a paradigm of grace in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus confronts our self-righteousness. He also confronts us with grace. Look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. What Jesus is calling us to is a kind of radical transformation of the way that we do life with one another. We love enemies, right? We do good without expectation of what we'll receive, because that's exactly what God has done for people like us. Right? God has been kind to the ungrateful. We are ungrateful. He's been kind to, to evil people. We are evil inherently by nature. He's been merciful to us by giving us mercy that we see visibly in, in the work of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection. Jesus showed love to those who weren't like Him. Right? 
Jesus showed love and mercy and grace to those that mocked him, that cursed him, that killed him. Right? Jesus, he says, he, he says, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I didn't come for the rich. I came for the poor. I came to, for those who needed a doctor. I came for those who needed saving. If you think you're morally superior, whether you're a moralist or legalist, you don't need me. But the reality is you do need me because you're worse off than you think. He came for people like us. Jesus says later in Luke 9, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will save, for my sake will save it. The point is that the gospel is the right side upping of the upside downness of this world. And, and that comes through grace and mercy that looks intuitively backwards to us. It's a new kind of living, what Jesus calls us to. Like the, the way up is the way down. Right? Um, to receive blessing is, comes through humility. For billions of people to enter into the kingdom of God starts with 12 messed up disciples in Palestine 2,000 years ago. As Jesus sends them out into the world, taking part in his mission. Eternal life for all of humanity, for people like us, comes through the death of the Son of God. Right? This is counterintuitive, right? This is not how you write a, a, a heroic story, right? If you have a Bible, look just a few verses before, um, before this in, in Luke 6. Starting in verse 17. As Jesus calls people to himself, he said this. It says, and he, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place. And with a great crowd of his disciples, great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Here Jesus is calling all these people to himself and he came down with them and he stood on a level place. This is a picture of the incarnation of God. That the Son of God came in the flesh to rescue the very people that offended the holiness of his name for generations. Right? He came for us to deliver us. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing, it's the gift of God, not according to works, so that no one may boast. Here is what grace does to disarm your quest for moral self-righteousness. Here's how grace disarms you. Grace doesn't make you morally superior because you're admitting something about yourself when you extend it to others. What you're admitting to others when you extend grace and mercy to them is, I'm someone who's so messed up that I cannot earn God's favor. I'm so messed up that I need help from the God of the universe to do anything good. That, that, that everything I touch, it's like the anti-Midas touch. Everything that I touch just turns to ruin. I, I'm broken. And, and my, my mind is broken. My thoughts are broken. My words are broken. My actions are broken. I am needy. I can't... I can't make my life happy enough. 
There's, there's never enough success and enough power and enough friends and enough status to make me undo the brokenness in this world and in this life that I experience on a daily basis. But the Lord has come to me and He's loved me and He's been merciful to me. He's been gracious to me. And now I want you to experience that too. Because I'm no better than you are. Grace disarms us from being morally superior. And it does away with our self-righteousness. We, we want to be right. We're people that want to be right. We're people that want to be morally superior. But Jesus says, look, stop trying to be right because I've made you righteous. Right? I've made you righteous in my blood, in my death, in my resurrection. So you now can live in the, in the hopeful reality of that. You can now live doing what looks so unexpected. What seems so backwards. You can love enemies. You can pray for those that hurt you and abuse you. You can lend freely because you know that you're made in the image of a God who has been gracious to you. Who has literally gone to the ends of the earth for you. The Son of God came down from heaven in His glory and He became like you. To, to live a life that you cannot live. To die a death that you deserve because you're a rebel. And to be raised to life so that you may be raised to glory in Him. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we, we thank you that you have loved enemies, that you've loved us. Uh, we thank you that you've been merciful and gracious to us. Uh, Lord, that is amazing to us. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would be more amazed by it today than we have been ever before. That we would live out of that grace. And that we would extend it to others. Lord, I pray this all for your glory. Amen.